Welcome to Insight, the insurance news podcast hosted by me, Andrew Sawcox. In this week's edition of Insight, our new intern is a cyclone called Ilsa, and she's making us all a cup of tea. Yes, that's right, there's a storm brewing. Ah, oh, no, with that joke, she stormed off. Look, that was my best joke, but much like Cyclone Ilsa, it really is just a draft. Mid-year renewals blow for the local markets, and it's not all hot air. And are breaches of the General Insurance Code of Practice overblown? We have all those answers and many more in our usual blow-by-blow analysis. Hello, everyone. This week, I'm joined by senior journalist Miranda Maxwell, deputy editor Wendy Pugh, editor John Deeks, and chairman Terry McMullen. Good morning, John. Morning. You were in Lismore recently, weren't you? Yes, I was. Yeah, catching up with residents after it's been one year since those record-breaking floods in February, March last year. So it was very interesting. And hello, Terry. Good morning. Unfortunately, you're reliving 2021 and are stuck at home at the moment, aren't you? I am, yes. We, we have COVID in the household. And hello, Wendy. Hello, Andrew. It's been a few weeks and our listeners will be glad you're back. Oh, it's great to be back. And hello, Miranda. Good morning. I guess your research on the cyclone must have been a breeze. Oh, boom, boom. It'll break out the Gershwin and play the stormy weather. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very nice. So let's start with Cyclone Ilsa Miranda. Oh, that's Cyclone Ilsa, not Cyclone Ilsa Miranda. That would be weird. Anyway, Miranda, it's not every day we get a Category 5 crossing the Australian coast. It certainly isn't. A lot of people were holding their breath on this last week. It looked like it might even hit Broome or Port Hedland. All the big tankers were sent out to sea and there were warnings for people in a 700-kilometre coastal stretch all on notice. Um, This event, it really could have gone in two ways. We could be talking about real devastation in Broome or in that huge mining port. But thankfully, although Cyclone did make landfall as a Category 5 on Thursday, it was over 100 kilometres north of northeast of Port Hedland, and so it pretty much missed all the towns and infrastructure. There was a caravan park and a roadhouse at Pardu that Aon estimates sustained $4 million in damage and some flooding inland, but not too much else. It really was such a narrow miss. It did set a new wind speed record of 218 kilometres an hour. It's not going to have significant insurance repercussions. And even though it qualified under the government's reinsurance pool, it's not going to be the litmus test some people had hoped it would be and put that to the test and iron out any issues. Well, like you always say, Terry, it comes down to location, location, location. See, I do listen to you. But should this be a warning? What if the next Category 5 does hit Broome or another population centre? Well, you know, it does from time to time. You get cyclones going through those areas, but the towns are very far apart and places like road roadhouses usually get demolished along with caravan parks. But at least the buildings in those areas are, for the most part, generally built to take a lot of wind. So even if trees get toppled and there might be some flooding, really damage to buildings and, and you know, sort of infrastructure is, is pretty much minimal. Port Hedland's in the middle of what they call Cyclone Alley. It's going to get cyclones every year. And I lived inland from there for much of the 80s. And in my first 10 days in the place, three cyclones came through. 
one of which was supersized. So <laughs> it's not nice, but is but they are very well prepared in those areas, including Broome, for cyclones. Uh, so while I wouldn't worry too much about the population centres in the northwest, it's a different story in the east and not just the North Queensland coast. I think we have to consider the gradual warming of the oceans that can tempt cyclones further south. And here on the the sort of the, the southeast coast, where population centres are less widespread and, and homes are built for many reasons, but none of them have much to do with windstorm, uh, I think the damage could be catastrophic. And, and it's the areas south that we should be worrying about more. Well, despite that lucky escape, Wendy, reinsurance rates are still rising. And our analysis this week looked at the April renewals and what's coming up in June for the local market. Well, yes, you know, there are those three key renewal periods, which is, you know, January, uh, April and July. So going back to the start of the year, the renewals, which are focused on the US and Europe, were very difficult with rate increases and tougher terms and conditions. Now we've seen that pattern continuing for April, which is um, uh, more of a key time for, for Asia. So it really doesn't augur well for the mid-years when a majority of Australian uh, renewals come due. So I think this April experience has reinforced the view that this is shaping up as possibly the toughest renewal reinsurance buyers here in years. And of course, we've had Auckland flooding in Gabriel in New Zealand as well now. So, I mean, capacity will be available. It's just a matter of at what price and on what terms. Why does it matter if reinsurance rates are going up sharply, John? Well, yeah, it does matter. I mean, going to have a major impact on the insurers. And you could say, well, they can just pass that additional cost on to their customers. But the way premiums have gone up recently means that, that that wouldn't be an easy process. Uh, the affordability of insurance is already a hot topic. And if premiums go up sharply as a result of rising reinsurance rates, then we can expect a fair bit of negative headlines to come the industry's way, I think. Not that it would be any of their fault, of course. Insurers are not making ridiculous profits, not by a long shot. And the high premiums would simply reflect a high risk. So I guess if higher reinsurance rates do lead to yet higher premiums, then it's really a message to governments to ramp up the work that they've started on mitigating natural catastrophe risks. Well, in other news, the payment of cyber ransoms is a fraught issue, Miranda, and is flared up again following recent high-profile attacks. What's the ICA's view on this? Well, it's such a thorny issue, and I think there's just no perfect answer, but the ICA has come out and said that there should be extreme caution about banning ransoms and for now that the government should allow victim organisations to keep the power to decide whether they pay or don't pay and there should be consultation with insurers before any ransom payment ban because that could have unintended consequences. Uh, as an example, SMEs could be disproportionately affected. Their recovery from an attack impacted and it could significantly impact their ability and capacity to recover and return to operations. The ICA said greater regulation of crypto asset, assets should be considered as part of the solution and that any government initiatives to improve cyber risk posture would improve the availability of insurance. While it recognised paying ransoms can contribute to a criminal business model, it says for now ransom payments are just a cost of recovery and sometimes the most cost-effective solution. What do you think, Terry? 
Is paying a ransom just encouraging the crime or is it an option that should be available to me? I mean, victims. Look, I, I agree with ICA. I, I think businesses need the flexibility to do what's best for them in, in those circumstances. Remember the glory days of the Somali pirates just about 15 years ago, for example, when ships were freed only because insurers arranged the physical transfer of millions of dollars. I actually met a specialist whose job seemed to be consist entirely of sitting on the edge of a helicopter door, lowering large bags of money onto ships. So the, there are even specialists in such things in this industry. I realise paying a, a cyber ransom seems crude and it does pander to the crims, I agree, but I suggest we also have to weigh the cost involved sometimes in not paying. I'm just glad I don't have to be the one to decide things like that. These acts of piracy keep happening. So obviously some companies are weighing up the consequences and they are paying the ransom. And when you think about it, it's when when companies do let confidential customer information go, for example, by saying we're not going to pay a ransom. It's the customers who really are affected far less than the company. And so I think the rights of the customer have got to be weighed up in there somehow. Now, John, breaches of the general insurance code of practice have reached record levels. What's going on here? Yes, that's right. So in the 12 months to June the 30th last year, there were a record 58,104 breaches reported of the General Insurance Code of Practice, and that is up 40% on the previous year. So the Code Governance Committee released a report recently saying just how disappointing that was. Now, they did acknowledge, of course, that during that period, we had some pretty horrific claims events which put insurers under a lot of pressure, but that doesn't seem to be accepted as a reason for this rise. The, the committee says that breaches have been going up for five years now, and that this new sort of new normal, if you like, of higher frequency and severity, natural catastrophes, is, is something that insurers have got to get to grips with. Now, insurers, I think, would... <laughs> probably would probably have a few things to say about this if they could speak openly about it. I mean, they, the the most breached obligation was the obligation for insurers to tell customers about the progress of their claim at least every 20 business days. That obligation alone was breached 17,661 times. And uh, we know when insurers are absolutely flooded with with claims, it's very, very difficult for them to to meet that obligation. We've had people telling us that it's just impossible and that, you know, do you really want us to be spending time doing that when we've got claims that need to be lodged, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's a lot to talk about here. And I guess you have to wonder if that obligation is is in fact reasonable when you get to sort of record level catastrophes like the floods that we had last year. But the code is there and the insurers are signed up to it. So I guess they have to meet it. Um, I do think there's there's got to be some some debate here between the the committee and the insurance providers to come up with a way forward. Well, I'm reading between the lines here, but Wendy John thinks that self-reported breaches might not necessarily be a good thing or a bad thing. Not long ago, brokers were getting told off for not reporting enough. 
Yeah, you know, there's a level where reporting of breaches can be so low that it's clear that people just aren't really looking or giving it the attention it, it deserves. So you don't want that. So taking monitoring and compliance seriously is a good thing. And the ICA has said it's invested significantly to improve breach identification and reporting. But a 40% jump is is really not a good sign. Um, and it's obviously reflecting, I guess, those bigger issues around the sheer volume of claims following the record flooding and other disasters and just knock-on effects of that more widely. Well, finally, Terry, the latest insurance news magazine is about to reach your inboxes and doormats. What can readers expect from the April-May edition? Oh, lots of informative and stimulating insights, Andrew. This latest edition focuses quite a bit on, on underwriting agencies, uh, mainly because the agencies are really starting to kick goals in a hard market and, and brokers are turning to them increasingly to place certainly harder to place risks. But they're also competing with the mainstream insurers. And it's a, a symbiotic relationship, really, that will become more obvious over the next few years because insurers also see the advantage in supporting specialists. We've interviewed the Underwriting Agencies Council's new and inaugural CEO, Jenny Bax, and she makes it clear, really, in that interview that the agencies are just at the start of where they're going. The magazine also marks the one-year anniversary of the New South Wales and Queensland floods with uh, a report written by John taking us to Lismore and surrounds and, and showing us how people are really managing or not managing and how they're really talking about it. the next one is not going to be anywhere near as bad. Uh, fact is, folks, there is a next one. And Zurich's local CEO has given an in-depth insight into his priorities as he looks to bring the life and general side of the business closer together. That's not a new concept, so good luck with that, guys. But for now, the magazine is, I think it's available in the next few days, isn't it, Andrew, online and in print? Well, that brings us to the end of this week's Insight podcast by Insurance News. Thank you once again to our panel, John Deeks, Wendy Pugh, Miranda Maxwell, and Terry McMullen. Enjoy your week and thank you all for listening. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at editor at insurancenews.com.au. We value your input. You can read all these stories and many others at your leisure at insurancenews.com.au. You can subscribe to the Insight Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google, on all your favorite podcast platforms now. We look forward to catching up again next week.